Good morning, everybody. Let me uh, get started here. Why don't we uh, begin uh, with a word of prayer? Holy Father, we thank you for this day, this Lord's Day, that we can rest in worship. Lord, we thank you for how good and majestic you are. Lord, we take up uh, David's prayer this morning uh, that he prayed to you long ago. He says, therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? making himself a name, and doing for them great and awesome things. Father, we know that you have done great and awesome things for us in your Son, and we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this time that we have uh, to study your word, to study your covenant with David, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 7, another uh, really uh, high point in Scripture. And if there's one word that could really summarize this chapter, it's the word dynasty. Whenever you hear that word, maybe you're like me, and you automatically think of sports dynasties. You think of uh, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Think of um, the Buffalo Bills and how they um, had a dynasty, but just wasn't great enough to beat the Cowboys dynasty. Or maybe you think of the Atlanta Braves and how in the 90s they just weren't quite able to get over the hump of the better dynasty, the New York Yankees. <laughs> That's for my elder. I'm expecting an elder, I'm expecting an elder visit later this week. Isn't that? Well, anyways, uh, God in 2 Samuel 7 promises David a dynasty. It's not a sports dynasty, but it's a royal dynasty. And one of the things that... Um, the narrator does throughout this passage is he does something with the word house. So as we work through the passage, I want us to keep in mind how um, he's using the term house to really structure and drive the narrative. So in one meaning, a house could mean a physical dwelling place. A second meaning of house would be a temple. And a third meaning would be a dynasty. And all three of those meanings are at play throughout chapter 7 here. The chapter breaks down into three sections, and I've got that um, bracketed off for you there um, on the handout. First is uh, verses seven, or, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, which is David's desire uh, to build a temple for the Lord, and talks about David's situation. The second section, verses 4 through 17, is the Lord's response to this desire. And then verses 18 through 29 is David's response to the Lord. And so we'll uh, consider these three passages this morning. So first, let's look at verses 1 through 3. If you'll read along with me. It says, Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So the passage, first couple verses here discuss David's situation. What is his situation? Well, we see that he's living in a house. He lives in a house of cedar. Like This is a very um, luxurious home. 
And the Lord has given him rest from all his surrounding enemies at this point. And while he dwells in a house of cedar, this really uh, luxurious, luxurious house, the ark of the Lord is dwelling in a tent, which is what we saw last week whenever the ark of the covenant came to Jerusalem. Well, so David, we see here, he's reached a point where he can begin to start thinking about taking on a building project. And this is a feasible thing for him. He wants to build a house for God. Um, it's not entirely clear what his motives are for doing this in this passage. Um, a couple of um, scholars have made some suggestions. One scholar says, David wants to crown his external achievements by erecting a temple to Yahweh who has given him victories. In the ancient world, a deity without a proper temple was considered inferior. Um, one of the things in this time, if you look at, if you compare this passage to other Near Eastern passages, the, 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 the progress goes, the deity does a favor for the king, and the, the king returns that favor by building a temple, and then he incurs more favor from, from the deity. Um, that's probably not what's happening here. Um, one other scholar, he says, it's not that so much as it's just David wanting to build a house for God out of gratitude for God's grace. So those are a couple of um, interpretive options that we consider his motive. But as I said, the text is not clear here. What it is clear is that Nathan, the prophet, this is the first time Nathan is mentioned, and it won't be the last, he gives David the green light. He says, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. We saw that uh, the narrator has already mentioned that God is with him back in chapter 5. And, and the prophet sees that uh, David's situation. He can see, yeah, God is with you. Go and do what's in your heart. Uh, this is not Nathan acting necessarily as a yes man as much as him um, seeing what David's situation is like and, and approving that. Well, we haven't seen what the, uh, the other character in this scripture is, and that's God. What is God's response? What is God and his desire for this? Let's look at verses 4 through 7. He says, But the, that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for, uh, for my dwelling in all the places where I have moved with all my people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people? Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So what do we see? What is the Lord's response to this? He rejects it. He first, um, he first affirms David's position as servant. This isn't um, him rejecting David so much as David's desire. David retains the status as a servant of the Lord, and that's not under threat. God affirms that status and wants David and reminds David of his status as his servant. We see in the, his rhetorical question, would you build me a house to dwell in? We see here that David's desires to build a house for the Lord in some way maybe reverses the roles within their relationship. 
It's the Lord who acts in grace and bestows favor. It's David's response to obey. He says here also that he has not lived in a house since forming the nation of Israel. He has rather dwelt in a tent so that he can move about, move freely with his people. See, a temple would localize God's presence, and in some way it would limit his um, ability or his freedom, or restricts his freedom in some way, to move about with his people. And then finally he says, I have not even requested a house. <laughs> you see, so here we see that um, David, um, uh, it's not his place to initiate this. Right? It's not his place to initiate building a temple. That, per, that prerogative belongs to the Lord. And this, um, this passage here, it really kind of pops if we look at what's, I think, in the background here, and that's in Deuteronomy chapter 12. If you will, turn in uh, your scriptures to Deuteronomy chapter 12, and we'll look at the first seven verses. So I think this is uh, providing a background for our passage here. Um, It says here, These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution, that you present your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So here on the plains of Moab, Uh, Moses is preaching to the people of Israel before they're going into the land, the promised land. And he's saying, the Lord is promising to you that he will choose a place among all the tribes that he will set his name in that place. And this theme um, is a theme that runs throughout Deuteronomy. Um, And so we know that throughout, God has yet to establish that place. Well, now that the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem, David's thinking, ah, it's here. It, this is the place where God is going to, um, to establish his name. And surely it is, but it's not that time yet. See, it's God he's, that we see here in Deuteronomy that says that he will choose the time and the place that he will permanently establish his presence and location to be worshipped. It's not that time yet. Well, Uh, He not only rejects David's proposal, but now he moves to a series of promises And uh, in verses 8 through 17. In verses 8 through the first part of 9, God does some things. He reminds David of the things that he's done for him. Look at what he says here. He says, Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. So he reminds David of several things here. What sort of things do you see that he reminds him of? Yeah, he's been with him the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, he took him from shepherd to king, right? Um, he's been with him this whole time and wherever he went. And we also see that he's delivered him from all of his enemies. So we see here God is reminding David of his faithfulness. And that faithfulness serves as a basis now for the promises that he's about to make to David. And listen to just the series of promises that he makes here. Picking up at the end of verse 9, he says, And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, Deuteronomy 12, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So by my count, God makes 14 promises here. Okay? He promises, I will make your name great. I will appoint a place uh, for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they will have their own place and peace. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord will make you a house that is a dynasty. I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his kingdom. And here's one that uh, his son will do. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will discipline him when he commits iniquity. And my steadfast love will not depart from him. And in verses uh, 16, we see the result or sort of the summary of this series of promises. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there are, I believe, um, three different ways that we can sort of summarize or three headings that we can 
um, that we can use to kind of gather together these various promises. The first one is here God promises um, the localization of his presence. He says, God will plant Israel in the land, and he will dwell among them in the temple that David's son will build. Here's a, a clear reference, anticipation to Solomon. We also see here that he is uh, reaffirming and appropriating the land promise to Abraham. There's also, so there's the localization of God's presence. There's also the centralization of worship and rule. So the existence of the temple not only means that the pre, that not only means the presence of the Lord, it also entails true worship of God um, and the place of God's rule on earth. We saw this in Deuteronomy 12, where here is where the true worship of God will take place with all those offerings and all those sorts of things. We also see the promise that God will adopt David's son as his own son. Um, this signifies something um, just unprecedented. We see the unity here between David's throne and the throne of God. Um, this is now the place in which God's rule on earth will, um, will meet. This is where it is found. It is found in Jerusalem on David's throne. So we have the localization of God's presence, centralization of worship and rule. And finally, we have dynasty. He promises him a dynasty, a royal dynasty. First of all, he promises to make his name great. He says that the house that God will build for David will be an everlasting kingdom. And then he says, when David lies down, the Lord will raise up David's offspring or his seed to reign on his throne forever. And uh, the most significant one in my mind is the promise that he will make David's son his own son, that the Davidic king is going to be God's son, the son of God. We see here that God is also binding uh, his covenant love, his hesed. This is the, the, the unique experience of God and his faithfulness to his promises in, through the covenant that those are now bound to and filtered through David's son. The covenant God, God's covenant faithfulness is now bound to and funneled through David's throne. This signifies something um, uh, pretty remarkable here about David's son, about the king, the Davidic king, is that the Davidic king is the mediator of the covenant now. The king has this unique relationship with God and shares his throne and shares a throne with God. And he has unique access to the Father. As the covenant mediator, he not only has this unique access, this unique um, status before God, but he also represents Israel. Now Israel's own experience of the covenant is now determined by the obedience of the king. And we all know what happens to Israel because of the disobedience of the kings. So his obedience and his, or his disobedience will determine Israel's experience with God. So God's promises here, this series of promises, can, I think kind of, um, we can head them off under three headings here. 
One is the localization of God's presence. God is, as we saw in in, uh, the promise in Deuteronomy 12, he's going to choose a place to set his name. So his presence will be there and will be established forever. We also see the centralization of worship and rule. Part of that is now, here is where worship takes place, the true worship of God. That will be significant for whenever the kingdom is divided. Right? Here is the true worship of, where, uh, of God. It's in Jerusalem, not in the northern kingdoms. Um, and it's God's rule. It's where God rules on earth. So God's throne and David's throne unite, and this is where God rules, is in Jerusalem. And then finally, and most significantly, is dynasty. So, after God promises these things to David, um, how does David respond? Look there at verses, uh, starting in verse 18. We see here that David, he sits before the throne, he sits before the tent where the Ark of the Covenant is housed, and his prayer consists of three aspects. Um, We see, first of all, submission and obedience. Look at verses 18 through 21. It says here, Then the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind. O Lord God, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness uh, to make your servant know know it. So here we see David, he humbles himself before the Lord. He acknowledges his position as servant of the Lord. And David ends up trusting in God's promises. And we also see obedience. Note, he gives up the, uh, his desire to build a temple. We don't have this. But God, please, I really want to build you a temple. Please let me do it. I know you said no, but I'd really like to do it. No, he, he, he surrenders that to the Lord. Um, next in David's response, we see doxology. God, we see him praising God. Look, starting in verse 22, this is verses 22 through 29. It says, Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem, to be his people, making himself a name. And doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage 
to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So what sort of things do we see here? Uh, how David is praising God. What sort of things pop out to you? Yeah. It was done like you. So, um, he praises God for his, uh, his uniqueness. How distinct he is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he praises God here for his kindness and his faithfulness to his people Israel. So there's a sort of incongruity there between God's action and then the people themselves. They are not deserving of this. Here we also see him praising God for his greatness in the beginning of verse 22. Um, a couple other things here. He prom- uh, David praises God with you know, sort of awe-filled fear for his promise to make David's house a dynasty. And then finally, David acknowledges God's truthfulness and trustworthiness and trusts that God will be faithful to his promises. So all throughout here, God is the primary actor. David is looking back. The promises of God here are God showing David, reminding David not only of his status, but also what he's done for him. And not just for David, but for all of Israel. God is showing his, his own steadfast love. He's laying out the arguments for his own steadfast love to Israel. And now that steadfast love is now incorporated with the Davidic throne through this covenant. So the throne of God and the throne of David are now united. And David's response here is also um, not only just prayer and and thankfulness and gratitude, it's also a response of an agreement to the terms of the covenant. And so now what I want to do is I want to kind of pivot to now talking about the significance of this passage. This, as I said, this is God's covenant with David. And what's, um, what may uh, be a bit stark here, what may be a little shocking is the word covenant never even appears in this passage, right? Uh, but in other passages in Scripture, it looks back to this and calls it a covenant. Um, so uh, what we see here in the Davidic covenant is we see the culmination and the consolidation of the previous covenant promises, and then it reshapes those promises by setting them upon a new trajectory, which is centered on the royal line of David, And so, as we saw here, God will establish his presence, his rule, and his worship in Jerusalem 
and incorporate those with the Davidic line. Um, the kingdom of God, another way to put it would be the kingdom of God now is expressed through and experienced within the Davidic kingdom. Okay, those, God's kingdom and David's kingdom are united. Um, so as I said, the term covenant here, it, it does not appear in our passage, yet this is, this is a covenant. Um, as I said, there are a couple of passages of scripture that, that call it a covenant. Um, I'm just going to reference one. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 5 says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. You can also look at Psalm, chapter, Psalm 89, and littered throughout that psalm, um, it's calling this a covenant. So scripture bears witness that this is indeed a covenant. Well, what is a covenant, <laughs> right? What is a covenant? Um, there's not necessarily one definition of a covenant. There's probably as many definitions of a covenant as there are books on the topic of covenant. Um, but just a very bare bones sort of um, rudimentary um, definition. Um, a covenant is, is the bond of a relationship with God. It is, a, is an agreement between two parties, um, typically involving obligations for one or both parties. Um, and also usually with curses for breaking one's covenant obligations and blessings for upholding one's covenant obligations. And this, is, uh, this concept of covenant is, is highly significant for how we understand Scripture, for how we read Scripture, for how we understand our own relationship to God. Because covenant is the way in which God and man relate to one another. From creation all the way to consummation, the mechanism through which God is relating to us and we are relating to God is through covenant. And the covenant between God and man, there are two great covenants, overarching covenants throughout Scripture that have to deal with God's covenant with man. The first one is covenant of works. Okay? This is a covenant God cre- that God made at creation with Adam before the fall. Um, and Adam functions as the covenant head and that his perfect obedience um, in, in obeying the Lord for not eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil would be eternal life. He will know God forever um, if he passes that probationary period. As we know, he does not. Right? And so God then establishes a new covenant called the covenant of grace. So God does not leave um, all of mankind um, in the sin and guilt of Adam, but he elects some to be in Christ and to be redeemed by Christ, who is the covenant head, the covenant respond, the, the covenant um, mediator. He is the representative who then fulfills the covenant of grace. And this covenant of grace is administered differently throughout redemptive history. Um, so, uh, so starting from... And, you know, it progresses, it's the, uh, as you read scripture, it progresses throughout scripture through these covenants, starting with Genesis 3.15 and the, the promise of the covenant, going to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and finally the new covenant. And this is a progressive, organic unveiling, if you will, of, of God pouring out his covenant grace um, on his people. Um, and so these two covenants, um, 
they are overarching. They, uh, they unite scripture. And, and so now what I want to do is consider how then is, is David's covenant um, a part of this covenant of grace? How is it connected with previous covenants? And then how then is it looking forward to and anticipating the new covenant? And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of material here, and I just want to focus on, on one aspect. And that is uh, in 2 Samuel 7, 14, that the Davidic king is God's son. That's, I, I want to focus on that. Well, we see all the way back in, um, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 26 and 27, that when God creates man, he creates them to have dominion over his creation. Man is created to rule over God's creation and to represent God in, in ruling over creation. And as we know, God fails, uh, um, not God, man fails in this. He falls from this because Adam, he does not obey God's command and he fails to rule over the serpent. And so Adam must suffer the penalty of the covenant. That is death. So God sending Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. This death is a twofold death. It's one, a spiritual death, signified by God uh, kicking them out of the garden. They are now separated from God. They are apart from God's presence. And then there's the second part of death, which is their physical death. Yet God, as I said, he does not leave man uh, alone. He makes a promise to them. And this promise of the covenant of grace, we see first of all here in, in Genesis 3.15, when he promises victory over the serpent, he says that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And so what this does is this sets a trajectory for all of redemptive history, that what's going to happen is as God, as we move throughout scripture, God is unveiling who this son is, who this promised child is. We move to Abraham in Scripture. And what does God promise to Abraham? He makes three promises. He says that he'll give him land, he'll give him blessing, he'll be a blessing to the nations, and seed, the promise of an heir. And in Genesis 15, God says, you will have a son from your own flesh that will be your heir, not your slave. And Abraham responds in faith and trust in God justifies him. You see that in Genesis 15, 6. Well, this seed moves now through Isaac uh, to Jacob um, and, and God renaming Jacob Israel. And then what we see is with the 12 tribes, he promises Judah one thing. He promises them that the scepter will not depart from his hand. So here is sonship and rule. United with Judah. When we move to, to Moses, we know Israel here is called to be a light to the nations. So the nation, Israel is to be the nation through whom all of the other nations experience the Abrahamic blessing. Um, and in fact, um, he even calls Israel his son. In Exodus 4.23, whenever he goes to talk to Pharaoh, he says, let my son Go so that he may serve me. So now, as we move through scripture, as we move through redemptive history, we've got the seed promise in Genesis 3.15, moving through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
to, to, to Israel as a nation. Israel obviously fails in their obligation to God to be this blessing to the nations. And then we move now to David. And David going through exile, uh, to the exile, uh, period of exile. So Solomon in this uh, Davidic covenant, he is the immediate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. However, as we know, he ends up failing, right? He falls into disobedience.